I ran across a good quote. If you're brave enough to say goodbye, life will reward you with a new hello. If you're brave enough to say goodbye, life will reward you with a new hello. And this was the discovery made by Jesus' disciples. In chapters 13 through 17, Jesus says goodbye. And in his place, he promises his followers another helper, specifically another of the same kind. For the Holy Spirit took up where Jesus left off in the training of his disciples and in the building up of his church. As you read the book of Acts, as well as in church history, we're told how the Spirit extended Jesus' influence globally and generationally. The ministry of the Holy Spirit even expands the church today. This morning, we'll pick up from last week in the last two verses of John chapter 15, beginning in verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Notice the Holy Spirit comes to testify of Jesus. You know, when I grew up, the dean of late night talk shows wasn't Jimmy Kimmel or James Corden, but Johnny Carson. Any of you old guys remember Johnny Carson? Maybe a few. Yet a key to Carson's success was a man that you've never heard of, his longtime producer, Freddie D. Cordova. One night during the filming, the camera panned off stage and focused on Freddie D. Cordova. This was both unusual and unplanned. When Freddie realized the camera was on him, he was furious. He started shouting, no, 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 get the camera on Johnny. He's the star. And this is the job of the Holy Spirit. Rather than attract attention to himself, he focuses the spotlight on the star, on the Son, Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit comes to testify of Jesus, which makes for an interesting observation It may sound odd, but it's true. A church that's preoccupied with the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit to the exclusion of Jesus is not really being led by the Holy Spirit. Some charismatic churches I've visited get so wrapped up in the things of the Spirit, they fail to glorify Jesus. They neglect His Lordship. A church that's truly Spirit-led will be all about following Jesus. The Holy Spirit will see to it. Well, chapter 15 ends, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. The Holy Spirit will testify of Jesus, and likewise, so will his disciples. And they did largely through the writing of the New Testament. God gave these men unprecedented access to Jesus so that they could report on his life and teachings. Well, chapter 16 begins, these things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God's service. Excommunication from the synagogue was Jewish persecution, but that was just the tip of the iceberg. In the future, Rome too will grow a distaste for Christians. Jesus continues, And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you, that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. 
And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Jesus is being brutally honest with his disciples. The road ahead will not be easy. Persecution looms large. Their chief consolation will be the helper. You know, too often we talk to a new convert, a prospective convert to Christianity. Oh, we talk to them about the love and joy and blessing that they'll find in Christ. But we say nothing about the persecution that's promised. And yet 2,000 years later, this is still a threat. We shouldn't scare folks needlessly. But Jesus kept his disciples from stumbling because he was straightforward about the persecution that lay ahead. Jesus warns that there'll come a time when fellow Jews will think they're doing God a favor by killing Christians. This was exactly the attitude of Rabbi Saul in Acts chapter 9. Fast forward three centuries. In 325 AD, a council of 318 church leaders met in the Persian town of Nicaea to nail down the doctrine of Jesus' deity. It was a response to decades of false doctrine. The creed they composed is one of the most definitive statements on the deity of Jesus in all of history. In it, Jesus is said to be very God of very God. For the three centuries prior to Nicaea, the church had been an underground movement. Believers had lived and the church had grown in the crosshairs of Roman hostility. In fact, just prior to Nicaea, the Roman emperor Constantine had become a Christian and had legalized Christianity. At Nicaea, for the first time in 300 years, church leaders were able to gather openly without fear of reprisal. And Nicaea was a moment that you wish you could have been there. Imagine the men in attendance that day. There was a pastor from Egypt who had one eye. The Romans had plucked out the other from its socket when he refused to renounce his loyalty to Jesus. Three men had ugly scars on their face from the persecution they suffered. A few of the pastors limped on one leg. Most everyone in the room had lost an appendage of some sort, an arm or a hand or a finger or even an ear. A lot of the pastors had burn marks from scalding oil. And every man in the room, his back was a crisscross of scars. These men had weathered decades of persecution. Members of their church had been slaughtered by the gladiators and fed to the lions. And yet now these leaders were proof that Christianity had triumphed. It had triumphed over the empire. As Jesus said in John 15, the road would be hard, but the helper will ensure that his disciples will not be made to stumble. And come what may, the Holy Spirit will be your helper too. Well, verse 5 tells us, but now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Jesus' departure meant the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And even though this was hard to grasp at the time, Jesus knew this would be to their advantage. 
The man, Christ Jesus, was limited to one place at one time. The Holy Spirit would be with all believers in all places at all times. For Christianity to go global, it was necessary for Jesus to be replaced by God's Spirit. Beautiful and true is the prayer of St. Augustine. You ascended from before our eyes, and we turn back grieving only to find you in our hearts, the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus says of the Spirit, And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. During his ministry on earth, Jesus redefines sin and true righteousness and judgment. And now it's the Holy Spirit's job to convince the world that Jesus is right. The Spirit convicts the world first of sin. And why? Because they do not believe in me. Understand, following Jesus, mankind's biggest problem was not sin per se. Today, that's not our biggest problem. Jesus established a remedy for sin. The cross. On the cross, he took care of sin. He offered us forgiveness and freedom. But if you reject Jesus, you forfeit that remedy. See, no one goes to hell for just adultery or lying or stealing or any specific sin, but because they fail to believe in God's one provision for all sin, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, the Spirit comes to convict of sin because they do not believe in me. And then he also convicts the world of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. The Pharisees, they stressed an outward righteousness, a paltry, stilted, wooden kind of legalism. But the life of Jesus was a ballet of beauty and truth, of love for others and purity toward God. When the disciples looked at Jesus for the first time, they saw what true righteousness really looked like. And yet righteousness is not a dance that you can choreograph and then teach to someone else. I'll never be a great dancer because I lack rhythm. I got the white man's disease. I mean, I can't work out what's not inside of me. And this is the key to righteous living. Jesus returned to the Father so he could sin and plant the Spirit inside of us so that we can live out the righteousness that's in our hearts. And then the Spirit comes to convict the world of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Rather than judge every sin individually, God has relegated the unpleasant task of judging sin to one place and at one time. God heaped up all of the guilt in one pile. And with one bold stroke, he settled the score. It was on the cross that the world was declared guilty and that sin was placed on Jesus' innocent shoulders and it was sentenced to death. The price he paid to forgive us defeated our accuser. And now the judgment that's yet to come is just a formality. Well, verse 12, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. At this point, the disciples were in overload. Jesus had more to tell them, but they lacked the ability to discern He says, however, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. So often our logic is earthbound. Our thinking is 
human thinking, whereas God's truth is heavenly, and we need the Holy Spirit to help us understand. You know, it's interesting, back in chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus promised that the Spirit would bring to the disciples remembrance the things he had spoken, which was the Gospels. Here we're told that the Spirit will guide them into all truth, which are the epistles that they will later write. And then he tells them that he'll even speak to them things to come, which is the revelation. Put all three promises together, and Jesus here is predicting that the Holy Spirit will inspire all of what we call the New Testament. And then Jesus says of the Spirit in verse 14, He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit will speak on his behalf. He's always in harmony with the nature and teaching of Jesus. God's Spirit is always in sync with God's Son. This means that if someone comes to you, and spouts a thought that's contrary to the teachings of Jesus and says that the Spirit told them. It's not the Holy Spirit. The Spirit never contradicts the Son. He says, a little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me, because I go to the Father. Now, we'll learn learn later that when Jesus talks about a little while, he's talking about the interval between his crucifixion and his resurrection, those three days. For we're told in verse 17, Then some of his disciples said among themselves, What is this that he says to us, A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, what is this that he says a little while? They're confused over this little while. We do not know what he's saying. They were confused, but they were too proud to ask. For now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, And he said to them, are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. His crucifixion will bring crushing sorrow to the disciples, but it will be followed by the immense joy of his resurrection. And then Jesus says, a woman when she is in labor has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, a woman who's had multiple kids is proof of this statement. If she's just had one and stopped, But if she's had more than one child, the glee of having a child has overshadowed the grunts of getting him here. I don't think there is another experience in life where the pendulum swing is as big as childbirth. One moment you got a woman screaming, never again. Five seconds later after the baby arrives, the same woman is totally joyful. It's amazing. But this was the swing experience that first Easter morning when the disciples discovered that Jesus had risen. He says, therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. And in that day, 
you will ask me nothing. In other words, his resurrection will bring them incredible joy and answer all of their questions. And then verse 23, most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now I'm sure these guys had prayed to God, but never in Jesus' name. They didn't realize that Jesus would now intercede for them. And yet after his ascension to heaven, this became Jesus' chief ministry. You realize Jesus is now our high priest, according to Hebrews. He's our advocate who takes our request before God's throne. Which means, why would any Christian bother to pray through the saints or to Mary? How could anyone have more clout with God than his sinless son? That's an insult to Jesus. The saints don't listen to your prayers. Mary's not listening to you. She's before the feet of Jesus, praising her Lord. It's Jesus who intercedes for his peeps. And then he says, these things I've spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I have come forth from God, I come forth from the Father and have come into the world. Realize when Jesus intercedes for us, he's not overcoming some reluctance in the Father's heart to bless us. What a comfort these words are. The Father himself loves you. God desires to answer your prayers. He loves you so much. Jesus has gained for us access to God, but it hasn't changed the Father's heart towards you. Our Father God has always loved us. Now again, I leave the world and I go to the Father. His disciples said to him, See now you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? In other words, are you guys now ready to face the challenges of your faith that are coming? Verse 32, indeed the hour is coming, yes, has now come that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. The disciples were sounding so self-confident in their faith, but soon they'll abandon Jesus. They'll be scattered and their faith will be shattered. And yet Jesus says, and yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Jesus will be betrayed by these self-confident disciples. To a man, they'll abandon him in his hour of greatest need. Only his Father will be faithful. There may be times in your life when your friends abandon you, and only your Father, your Father God, will be faithful. Jesus summarizes what he's been saying to them. He says, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Jesus warned them, life in this world is not all sunshine and smooth sailing. You will have tribulation. For a follower of Jesus, this world is hostile territory. We're guaranteed to take some licks and absorb some jabs. At times you feel like the devil's dartboard. 
Yet in the midst of this tribulation, Jesus says to be of good cheer, for he promises us his peace. Here's a great definition of peace. It's knowing you possess adequate resources. Peace is knowing that I've got whatever I need for the challenges I face. And this is the peace that Jesus gives us, the assurance that he brings. It enables us to tackle life head on, come what may. And then notice too, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. When the great French reformer Theodore Beza was brought before the king, he made the statement, Sire, it is truly the lot of the church to endure blows and not to strike them. But please remember that the church is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. The Protestant reformers in England, they had a motto they lifted from the burning bush passage in Exodus. Nevertheless, it was not consumed. And this is how you have to close each new chapter of church history. Though the world beats at the church, we are not consumed. When Jesus rose from the dead, he defeated the forces that nailed him to that cross. And thus, those of us who trust in Jesus are overcomers. And then chapter 17 begins. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, and John 17 is often called the Holy of Holies of the New Testament. For this is the prayer that Jesus prayed just prior to his arrest. This prayer is the prelude to the prayer in Luke chapter 22 that Jesus concluded, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus pours out his heart, and by the end of this prayer, his pores are oozing sweat like great drops of blood, according to Luke. This was an emotional moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, or as the name implies, the Garden of Crushing. Like an olive, Jesus is now being squeezed. You know, I've heard it said, if you really want to know someone's heart, then listen to them pray. I think that's true. And here we discover a lot about Jesus by studying this prayer. You know, the night began in the upper room. Then Jesus and his disciples, they walked across the Kidron Valley. They walked up the Mount of Olives, and they gathered there in the little garden that they often visited, the Garden of Gethsemane. Now they've kicked out the fire. They've unrolled their sleeping bags. And Jesus walks off a short distance and he bears his heart in prayer. Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Now Jesus has always been on a strict timetable. Three times now in John, chapter 2 verse 4, chapter 7 verse 30, and chapter 8 verse 20, we're told that his hour had not come. Jesus refused to take his cues from people, the people around him. He refused to let pressures of circumstances hurry him. He refused to ever make a premature maneuver. His timing was impeccable. Why? Because he always set his watch to the Father's clock. You know, it's true. If you don't have a plan for how you're going to use your time, people will plan your time for you. The key to living a life that counts for Christ is not doing it all but it's following God's call. Are you doing what the Father tells you to do when he tells you to do it? For Jesus prays to the Father that the hour has come to glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. The cross was Jesus' moment of glory. 
That's why he came into the world. His obedience brought the Father glory. But it was after the cross that the Father glorified the Son. For Jesus ascended and he sat down at the Father's right hand. The Son was crowned with his glory. Hebrews 12 verse 2 says of Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus endured the pain of crucifixion because his eye was on the prize of his Father's pleasure. The Father's glory got him through the gory of the cross. And you know, that's a secret for us. It's the glory that follows the trial that gets us through the glory of enduring it. And then in verse 2, Jesus prays, As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Notice eternal life is not so much longevity of life as it is a quality of life. Eternal life is knowing Jesus. Remember, it doesn't begin when you get to heaven. An everlasting quality of life starts the moment you open up your heart to Jesus. He says in verse 4, For I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. You recall Jesus' final words on the cross, it is finished. Here was an echo of his prayer there. Jesus always finishes what he starts. Unlike some of you guys, you got so many unfinished projects in your garage. But you know Jesus always finishes what he starts. Yet, let's think this through for a moment. At this point in history, how many blind eyes were unable to see? How many lame legs were yet to walk? Had all the sinners repented of all their sins? The answer is no. Apparently, Jesus didn't come to do it all. Even the Son of God didn't feel pressure to do everything. I wonder why we feel that pressure. There were a few select tasks that God had given Jesus to accomplish, and he was faithful to finish them. He says, I have finished the work that you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus is longing to go home now. From eternity past, he had dwelt with the Father in glory. He had laid aside that eternal glory and humbled himself as a man and became a resident of earth and a child of time. And now his mission is almost complete. Jesus is longing to return to his former glory. He says, For I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, And they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Throughout this prayer, what a beautiful harmony exists between the Father and the Son. What belonged to Jesus belonged to the Father and vice versa. Their relationship was seamless, which makes the separation that will occur on the cross all the more momentous. 
When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was a feeling he had never had. And then he continues to pray. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Now understand this. On the eve of Jesus' crucifixion, on the night of his betrayal and arrest, just hours before his departure from this world, as if he didn't have enough to think about, Jesus prayed for unity among his followers. And yet when you look at the church today, fraught with schism, conflict and division, competition, you wonder what happened. If the church is the body of Christ, then we're uncoordinated and we're a spastic body. Early church father, Augustine, he was so exasperated with the divisions in the church that existed in his day. He wrote, the clouds roll with thunder that the house of the Lord shall be built throughout the earth. And these frogs sit in their marsh and croak. We are the only Christians. And sadly, those frogs are still croaking. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4 verse 3 that we should endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We can't create this kind of spiritual unity and harmony. Unity is a work of the Holy Spirit, but we can preserve that unity. We can avoid favoritism and cliquishness and pride and prejudice and other sins that divide us. We can be kind and tolerant and forgiving We can cut each other some slack. Hey, we can love one another, can't we? You know, I think it's interesting that Jesus here prayed for us to be one just as he and his father were one. You know, the Bible teaches that the Godhead is a blend of both unity and diversity. God is one God, but he exists in three distinct persons, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. All three persons are equal, but they're very different. And our oneness should also be a combination of unity and diversity. Oneness doesn't ignore our uniqueness. We can be united. We can have unity and still enjoy our diversity. In fact, real unity respects the very real differences that exist between us. See, spiritual oneness is not the denial of our distinctives. It's the realization that Jesus, our one commonality, is greater than all of our differences. And it's when we stay focused on Jesus that it causes us to bind together rather than gravitate apart. Christian unity is not synchronized swimming. Has that happened yet? You've been watching the Olympics. Have they done the synchronized? I don't think they've done the synchronized swimming yet. Synchronized swimming, to the best of my descriptive powers, it's a bunch of women who dress alike. They got on makeup just alike. They jump in the pool together at the same time. They mimic each other's moves and gestures. The goal, as I see it, is uniformity. Whereas pairs figure skating, then this is a sport. It's just the opposite. Oh, the teammates skate in tandem, but they don't copy each other. They complement each other. They move back and forth together. Pair skating is a beautiful sport. Synchronized swimming is hokey. 
Uh, sorry if you're a synchronized swimmer. But this is the difference between uniformity and unity. Jesus doesn't care about uniformity. He prays for our unity, not our uniformity. We should celebrate our differences. We are enriched by our variety and our diversity. Several times now, I've officiated Nigerian weddings. And we got another one coming up, don't we, Dolly? Yeah. I've attended African celebrations. Now, I know God doesn't make mistakes, but I have often confided in Kathy that I think I should have been born Nigerian. (laughs) I love the culture. Africans in general, they're all about family and faith and fun. I was born a white southerner a long way from Africa, but I feel great unity with my Nigerian family. Remember, Jesus' goal isn't to make us all Christian clones or synchronized saints. Be leery of a church where everybody looks and acts identical. Our pursuit of the glory of Jesus should merge our diversity into our unity. And then he says in verse 12, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. All 12 disciples are going to deny Jesus. They're going to run away. But they'll be kept by the power of God and they'll eventually make their way back, all of them except one. Here Jesus calls Judas the son of perdition. There's only one other person in the Bible referred to by that name. Do you know who it is? It's the Antichrist. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And then in verse 13, Jesus continues his prayer. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Notice Jesus' goal is for us to experience his joy, even in the midst of a wicked world. For I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Ever wonder why Jesus didn't transport us to heaven the moment we were saved? Would have solved a lot of problems, wouldn't it? But that wasn't his desire. He doesn't want us to be separated from struggle. He wants us to battle with temptation and to face opposition. For it is the resistance that makes us stronger. It's the fight that builds up our faith. Never forget that. You know, as the old saying goes, we're to be in the world, but not of it. Oh, we need to be in the world, working our jobs, going about, uh, intermingling with the people around us, building bridges to lost people. But if we're of the world, no one will see the need to cross the bridges that we build. We need to live for God boldly and attractively and display godly alternatives to the world's values. You see, for a boat to be useful, it has to be in the water, doesn't it? But let the water in the boat and you got problems. And likewise, the church should be in the world. But woe if the world gets into the church. That's what sinks our witness. And then in verse 16, Jesus prays for his disciples They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. 
Your word is truth. People absorbed in God's word will be different people and in a good way. Love will flavor their dealings. Integrity will influence their character. They'll march to a different drummer. For as you sent me into the world, notice this, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And here's where we could camp out for weeks. How did God's son enter the world? Philippians 2 is a classic text. It details the attitude behind the incarnation. Rather than flaunt his status, Jesus made himself of no reputation. Rather than flex his muscle, Jesus came to serve. Rather than focus on his superiority, he identified with our weaknesses. Rather than force his own will, he submitted to the will of the Father. And Jesus is praying that we too would go out humbly and submissive to the will of God as we go out into the world. And then verse 19, And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And this is incredible. Did you, did you read this? 2,000 years ago, Jesus prayed specifically for you and me. We're right here. Here he prays for the disciples, yet future, who will trust him later. That's us. The unity Jesus prays for and desires in his church stretches across continents and ages and generations. You know, a man once visited a mental hospital that was seriously understaffed. There were only three guards in charge of caring for hundreds of dangerous inmates. The fellow asked one of the guards, he said, aren't you afraid that these people will use their numbers and overpower you? The guard replied, no, no, lunatics never unite. It's been said, the devil does not fear a big church. He fears a united church. That's why we need to smarten up. We need to put our trivial differences aside. Jesus wants us to be united We can do more for him together than we could ever do apart. And then verse 22, And the glory which you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Say you're on the street and you see a lone penny. There's a good chance you won't even bother to reach down and pick it up. But what if you see a roll of pennies? I know you guys. You go grab as many as you can. But the point is, Christians will attract more attention in a group than by themselves. Bring a lost person into community, a community that loves one another, and they'll want more. Then verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Can you imagine the immensity of the love the Father has for his only begotten Son? It was a love formed before the beginning of time. And yet the Father gave his beloved Son to die in our place. He must love us too. The chapter closes. 
O righteous Father. The world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Imagine the difference we would make in our world if the love the Father had for his Son was seen in us and in how we love one another. Imagine. Remember, lunatics never unite. The last prayer Jesus prayed before his crucifixion was for our unity. Few things are more important to him. Let's celebrate our diversity, but more so, let's stay united in our love for each other and in our loyalty to Jesus. Let's pray together.